Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking to Dr. Elise Vernon Perlstein about her book titled Scent, A Natural History, published by Yale University Press in 2022. This book does a whole number of things, um, but perhaps core to it is a quote actually from the book itself. This book will take you through history and around the world to investigate smelly molecules that plants produce and explain and explore how they've affected our world, um, which is exactly what the book does. And it's deeply fascinating and very fun as well. So Elise, I'm very excited to welcome you to the podcast to tell us more about your book. Hi, Miranda. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. I've, I've enjoyed talking about the different aspects of the book and looking forward to chatting with you. Wonderful. Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself a bit and explain why you decided to write this book? Sure. Um, Just to begin with sort of my academic background, which plays into my perfume background, um, for various reasons, I got my, I went back to graduate school at about the age of 35 and got my PhD at 40. It was in biological sciences, um, studying morphology and genetics in birds of prey, which ended up being a continent-wide kind of a study between East Coast and West Coast, North America, which led me into more or less looking at large-scale patterns in biodiversity. And sometimes it would incorporate plants, sometimes it would incorporate animals, Um, But I spent a lot of time in the field, and I just became very interested in, obviously, natural history and the why and wherefore of different things. I didn't have a lot to do with with smells or fragrance other than the um, various odors that snakes can produce. King snakes have a actually very pretty musky scent, and rat snakes just smell terrible. from there, because I was grant funded, I, it just there came a time when I felt like I needed to do something different. And my husband and I began with um, learning how to make soap. And we were committed to making only natural soaps using natural ingredients. And I just absolutely fell in love with essential oils that we use to fragrance the soap. And that just led me down the path into natural perfumery. I studied with two uh, very experienced and and knowledgeable natural perfumers here in the U.S. and learned a lot. And I started making perfumes and selling them. One One of the ways my path went was into teaching and events. So I would talk to a lot of people who sometimes knew something about natural aromatics and sometimes didn't. And one of the things that I would do would be introduce them to jasmine, which is an amazing fragrance. And I would tell them that the jasmine plant does not make the fragrance for us, but it makes it for the moths that pollinate it. And people would be just kind of surprised at all that. And the same is true of just about every fragrance that you can think of, we use them But the plants don't make them for us. They make them for the pollinators and for the, to protect against disease and predation. 
um, shoot, there's another point I was going to make. Um, no worries. Oh. There's already a number of fascinating reasons to write a book. <laughs> As a part of that learning about perfumery and learning to talk about um, fragrance, I became a little bit frustrated with finding the words to describe smell. If you think about it, you ask somebody what a rose smells like, and they'll say, oh, it's rosy and it's floral. So you've already described the rose in the characteristics of the rose. And if nobody had smelled a rose, that doesn't really give them the indication of what it smells like. So I started making notes as I was learning the different fragrances. I, I really practiced figuring out how to describe them and ways to talk about them. And came about the book as sort of blending those stories of fragrance, but also maybe giving people a way to smell things and think about smells and maybe get interested in going out and seeing how a rose smells different from a jasmine or pine trees from fir trees or those sorts of explorations. Wonderful. Um, well, I think that makes a lot of sense having those different backgrounds. Um, having read the book, it very much is a multi sort of faceted way in. There are lots of different ways for people to get engaged, whether they come from a background that really understands chemistry or knows about loads about trade history or has a garden that they absolutely love. Um, and that's just probably only three of the ways in. There's probably many others um, that come together really nicely in this book. Um, kind of, yeah, it gives, gives people a lot of ways in. So I'm hoping that we can uh, represent some of that in this interview, though obviously not in the same amount of detail that you manage in the book. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can start off with a bit of the kind of chemistry side, which personally is less familiar to me. So I was especially fascinated to learn from this section. I'm wondering if you can introduce us to some of the key molecules that turn up in scent, like pinene and limonene and all sorts of things like that. Sure, sure. Um, I'm going to talk about it, I think, in two ways. Um, a lot of people are maybe a little bit familiar with some of the terpenes. Our citruses produce limonene, which, as it sounds like, smells like lemons. It's very citrusy. Uh, pinene is a fragrance that comes from pine trees, and it's pine sol, or it's, you know, that fresh pine fragrance. Um, some of our spices and herbs have a, a molecule called myrcene, which is spicy and herbal. And I talk about that when I go through the spices and some of the fragrances. Um, eugenol is the strong smell of cinnamon. And we find that not only in cinnamon, but maybe in, in basil and some of the other. You might even find it in a kind of a cinnamon-scented rose. Um, and these are familiar. They're fairly simple fragrances that we can easily identify. And they tend to be the smaller molecules. Um, they might be six carbon molecules with little additions here and there or restructuring to give the different fragrance. That means they are uh, very usually very pleasant, but they don't last very long. If you, if you peel an orange and you spritz the peel, 
the smell kind of comes and goes. Some of the larger molecules are the woody molecules and the, the floral molecules. They tend to build up more than six carbons in a molecule. Uh, they may be, you know, they're just bigger and more complex. And these are reflected in how a perfume is constructed from the bright opening notes all the way through to the musky, woody dry downs that tend to have larger molecules that stick on your skin for a longer time, sandalwood, for example, or the musks. Um, and ask me more questions if you want to know more. <laughs> I, I think that's probably a really a, a good foundation. Um, and it's, it's really fascinating just to hear in that answer kind of how you, as you said, talk about scent and in a lot of ways teach us listening how to talk about it, to link these very sort of chemical sounding things to actual experiences that we might have of kind of, oh, when you rub this or when you do that. Um, so that's a really, um, we've kind of already jumped into a lot of what's really uh, powerful, I think, about the things you bring together in the book. And so I'd love to kind of continue that by jumping to something you mentioned in your very first answer of explaining to people um, why jasmine smells nice, that it's not actually for humans to enjoy. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about why or how plants change their scent. Um, you talk about in the book, it depends on all sorts of things like the environment and pollinators and age and all sorts of things. So I'm wondering if you can maybe help us understand that through an example? Yeah, sure. Um, jasmine is a white flower, and I'm not going to talk about that specifically, but tobacco, ornamental tobacco or wild tobacco, not the one that we use in cigarettes and cigars, but the flowers of the tobaccos are very floral. They have what we call a white floral sense, which scent which is, is very pretty, very complex. It can be very, um, I use the word deep, which is a little bit hard to explain, but more than just a pretty soft floral. Uh, the characteristic of white flowers, because they bloom at night, they are light in color. They have um, petals that are usually dissected or complex, so they can be seen against the green vegetation. Uh, they tend to offer a reward in the way of nectar because all of these feed into the fact that their pollinators are moths, which fly at night. Now, they are emphasizing in their shape being able to be seen. The more important characteristic for them is fragrance. And the tobacco flower and jasmine and gardenia are all just really amazing at producing and blending floral fragrances. And they put those out in a plume of scent that the moth can then follow and come to find the flower. In the case of tobacco, the moth uses the plant both as a source of nectar, but also as a host for their caterpillars. So what you're doing is this plant depends on the same insect for um, pollination, but in that relationship, the caterpillars can cause damage. Some caterpillars the plant can handle, 
But when the load of, of these moth caterpillars get too high, the plant, as it senses, and it's hard to find a word, but the plant is able to know or sense that it's being damaged by these little chewing mouth parts. And so what it will do is change its fragrance by way of a molecule called jasminate. And jasminate starts this cascade of actually changing the fragrance of the flower from a molecule that attracts the moth to a more sort of average fragrance. But it also causes the tobacco to flower during the day which reduces the presence of moths and attracts hummingbirds. And hummingbirds will not, they're not as good of a pollinator, but the trade-off is they don't have caterpillars that chew on the tobacco. Hmm. That seems like a trade-off worth making. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's just amazing that this whole cascade of effects, um, you know, in a plant that doesn't have a brain or a nose or fingers or, you know, it can't move, but it's it's evolved in close relationship with both the moth and the other pollinators to be able to adapt to this change in environment or pollinator or predator. Mm, very interesting. Thank you for um, explaining that to us. And what a fascinating example Um, Yeah, it's amazing. And this was essentially part of the the inspiration for the book is just knowing about this relationship and wanting to look into other examples along these lines. Well, I'd love to turn to some of the other um, aspects of the book and other kind of interesting things that you uh, explain for us. And um, kind of moving, I suppose, from the chemical, and then we've done sort of a bit about ecology and now um, more on kind of, I suppose, trade and economics. Why is agar wood one of the most valuable woods in the world? Why is it so expensive? I think there are a couple of reasons. Um, it's It's a tree that grows in Indonesia and Vietnam, in Thailand, in India, And the tree itself is simply a part of the forest. The wood is not particularly valuable. What makes it valuable is the presence or the creation of a dark-colored resin within the tree. And that is in response to an injury. So maybe a little beetle will chew on on the tree and make a hole. And in about 10% of the trees, that creates a response that produces that dark, dark resin. And it feathers within the wood and is often called eagle tree, or the the trees are often called eagle trees because of that dark feathering like an eagle. What happens is you can't always know which tree has the resinous wood. And it's often, you know, in a, in a um, distant, hard-to-reach place. But over the centuries that people have been using it, both for medicine and incense and perfume, it's become very much endangered. 
And so that makes it expensive. And then it's just very much in demand, more in kind of Middle Eastern and Orient um, Chinese uh, uses for incense and so on, but more recently as an ingredient in perfume. And it's very charismatic. Uh, the smell is, I say in the book, it's not easy to love. It can be barnyardy, kind of um, smelling like, you know, a well-used barn with some old hay in it. But it also has very precious woods fragrances. It can have berry notes or um, hay-like notes. And it just adds this very interesting, complex effect when you use it in a perfume skillfully. Mm. Lots of reasons for it to be um, valuable, <laughs> um, both yeah. for its uses and for how difficult it is to acquire. Um, yeah. yeah, there's a little bit of mystery around it too. So all of that adds to desirability. Well, speaking of mystery, you um, obviously a lot of these uh, natural things that create scent are quite rare and quite mysterious. And obviously for many thousands of years and certainly hundreds of years of human history, um, the scents were known, but we didn't maybe understand like the biological processes, exactly what was happening chemically. Um, and it was really special. And you, you open the book by talking a lot about the use of scent in um, religious uses um, centuries ago um, up until really today. So I suppose it's not really surprising that there's a whole bunch of kind of ways that mythology and mystery are wrapped into these spices. Um, and you talk a little bit in the book about particular instances where certain spices are really rare. They're only in kind of particular places, which means, of course, when they're traded, they're sort of known from being from a particular place. But of course, there's an incentive to like not give those secrets away, right? Because you want to ensure you have a monopoly on the trade. Um, and that seems to somehow be related to kind of myths and mystery. But then there's also the religious element. Um, and there's just kind of a lot of things going on here. And this gives rise, as you show in the book, um, at least somehow, to stories of mythological creatures related to spices and scents. Um so I'm wondering if you can maybe tell us about one or two of them, and is there any basis in reality? <laughs> I, I will start off by um, just a little bit of going way, way, way back in time. And historically, people associated good, good smells, good scents with goodness or health, and bad smells with disease or evil or badness and incense was very important especially frankincense and I'll talk a little bit more about that because it has this beautiful resinous uh, woody sometimes citrusy fragrance that has been used in incense and what you get with frankincense and other woods and other things that are used as incense is you are taking this physical substance and when you burn it, you're turning it into, um, you're, you're taking that scent of it and, and making it visible. So you're, you're creating a visible representation of the scent that usually rises 
And so you're taking this good smell and sending it up into the heavens um, to perhaps take a message. And that's been the importance of incense. And frankincense was a hugely important part of the incense trade. Um, And the place where frankincense grows is on the southern end of the Arabian Peninsula under, you know, deep within unexplored territory throughout history. And um, a lot of the trade was controlled by the Arab nations and they, in order to hide the source and discourage people from coming to try to find it, they would tell stories. And frankincense was supposed to be a tree where large red snakes would live and jump out at people who came to find them. Um, Spices also were uh, subjects of mythology and cinnamon in particular, because it's hot and dry, was associated with the phoenix and with eagles. Uh, Phoenixes were said to keep frankincense and cinnamon and myrrh in their nests which created a perfumed pyre when the, when the phoenix would die and burn. And so there was that association. Cinnamon was associated with eagles, and it was said to be a material used by eagles in their nests. And in order to harvest the cinnamon out of the eagle nests, uh, the legend has it that the people who wanted to do the harvest would bring out huge chunks of meat and the eagles would carry them to their nests, which caused the nest to collapse. And then they could go in and while the eagles were distracted, you know, grab the cinnamon and run away, I guess. Um, So those are just a couple of the sort of legends that were told to guard and protect the sources of some of these very expensive and valuable spices. Those are some good stories. I, I mean, I can see why they would last in people's memory, um, perhaps along with the scent um, that comes with them. So thank you yep. for sharing those yep. with us. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps a smaller question than kind of tell us about all the myths um, would be, sort of in some of the details that you talk about in the book that are perhaps surprising to those of us who might enjoy nice smelling things, as you've mentioned, kind of everyone does, um, but maybe don't always know about some of the details of it. And one of them that perhaps um, would be surprising to other listeners is um, pepper. There's actually loads of different kinds of pepper. Well, okay, maybe not loads, but there are three different kinds of pepper that you talk about, black, white, and pink. Um, And while we might be used to thinking of lots of different kinds of chili, Perhaps we are less um, familiar with different kinds of pepper. So I'm wondering if you can maybe explain to us kind of how we get these three different kinds and in your expert vocabulary of explaining scents, um, how do you think they differ in fragrance? I, I absolutely love black pepper. I love it on my food, but it just is so pretty in a perfume because it has, and here's where you want to, be careful about how you describe things. Um, I talk in the book that spicy, again, is kind of a generic term. And um, spicy can apply to 
cinnamon and nutmeg. But when I think about pepper, I think of the words pungent and burning and sharp more than spicy. And what happens is when peppers grow in a cluster, just like a bunch of little tiny grapes, they're the seeds. And when they're harvested, they're green. And some people will use, they're actually green, red, green, white, and black peppers in addition to the pink. And the green peppers are still kind of, have that herbal aspect in addition to the sharpness. But what happens is peppers have to be cured in the sun. And then they get this wrinkled covering that develops the um, piperine, which gives that sharpness. And so the black pepper we're pretty much all familiar with has that sharpness in addition to in perfumery in the essential oil, kind of a woody uh, back note or I use the term dry down, which after the sharpness as the fragrance dries on a perfume blotter or a scent stripper on your skin, the sharpness modulates into a more woody, very pretty fragrance. White pepper is basically black pepper without that dark covering. So it's lost the sharpness, but it's got kind of a musky, sharp scent and taste and white pepper is used often in in cooking with white sauces and things uh, where you just want more of the sharpness rather than the the woody um, complex scent Mm. thank Um, you for explaining that yeah yeah and then pink pepper is a whole different plant Uh, it's uh, Brazilian pepper, it's a pepper tree, and it's actually from um, Central America mostly. Whereas pepper, the one we're familiar with on our tables, comes from India. The uh, pink pepper has a fresh, um, almost lavender like fresh herbal. It's also sharp. Um, and that's very pretty. It's less commonly used, but I, I quite enjoy it with florals. It adds some interest to, to jasmine, for example. That makes sense. Um, and that's something that you say very casually, like, oh, I would do this with it. And the rest of us are like, oh, okay, cool. Um, so thank you for sharing that little insight into um, how you might approach creating perfume. And I'm hoping that on that note, you might next tell us a little bit about um, the whole industry and kind of conception of modern perfumery. Um, how, wh- why and where and when did we sort of transition, obviously from always enjoying nicely smelling things, to maybe what we see today as modern perfumery? That um, is, I think of it as a conjunction of several um events, advances, movements, whatever, in history in a variety of different, uh, uh, not really disciplines, sciences. 
um, previous to about the middle of the 1800s, the 19th century, perfumes were made by taking, you know, jasmine, spices, woods, and extracting the scent into an oil or a fat or by distilling. But the people who could afford to do that and and purchase these uh, products were generally the wealthy. Somewhere around the, the middle of the 19th century, we had uh, the Industrial Revolution began to uh, make available machinery to do some of the work, like blending and extracting. We had distillation was much more common, and um, we were able to distill some of these fragrances instead of the really labor-intensive extractions that were taking place until then. Glass making. If we want an alcohol-based perfume, you had to have a pretty bottle to put it in. So all of these kind of came together, and in the area of grass in France, there was also the human factor with uh, people who had been involved perhaps in herbalism or botanicals or growing these plants that grow so well in the grass region. And this kind of combined to build upon an industry that had been there, which was glove making. Uh, Grass was the center of, of taking processed leather and making gloves. Well, processed leather is very stinky. And so they had the, the people who worked in that industry would scent the leather for the gloves with the lavender or the jasmine or the spices or the musks that either were available in the area or that they had knowledge of and could import. And it was just a a fairly short step from making these fragrances for scenting gloves to developing an industry. So we had the ability to make perfume with natural ingredients, but the really big step came about with the the, the ability, the, the knowledge of chemistry that allowed chemists associated with the perfume industry to extract and synthesize molecules. So instead of all the stuff that comes from plants, they could create single molecules to give us a particular fragrance. One of the early one was vanillin, which is one of the molecules in the complex scent that is vanilla. But by synthesizing it, it becomes much more affordable and much more available to the industry. And once that started, there seemed to have just been this um, ability and this expanding ability to create synthetic molecules, which really made perfumes much more affordable. And you could then create fantasy perfumes, you could say. You know, one of the early ones was a fougere, 
which is the smell of ferns. And ferns don't really have a strong fragrance, but it's a nice fantasy perfume. And it's a nice story. And a lot of times perfumes are about stories and about fashion. Fashion became involved in the perfume industry with later on Coco Chanel and the, the combining of marketing, fashion, affordability, and perfumes. Mm. I hope that answered it. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you for explaining the kind of the number of different things that came together um, to create sort of what we have today. And obviously, fashion and Chanel are very much still part of the perfume industry. Um, so yeah, so thank you for explaining that. Um, I'd love to kind of jump over the Atlantic a little bit and um, think about the perfume industry in America, uh, which quite obviously is another big perfume industry. And I was not particularly surprised to read that mint was foundational for the perfume industry in the States. I was like, okay, great, that makes sense. But I was a bit surprised about turpentine also being foundational. So I was wondering if you could explain to us sort of why and how these two things became so key to the American perfume industry we have today. Mint was um, grown and distilled beginning, and I don't have my dates, I'm sorry, um, probably very early on in our history in North America. And it grows quite well in the Northeast. And they began distilling it in the same um, areas where they already had stills and were distilling various liquor beverages. Um, and I didn't, I didn't really realize this, but North America doesn't really have a lot of spices. We get our spices from India and from, you know, other vanilla and chocolate from Central America. And mint became very popular as something you could add to your food to give it a little bit of life. Um, and mint has continued to just be a huge part of our industry. And mint is an ingredient in so many things from toothpaste to mouthwash, to candies, to gum. Um, and it was one of the things that early, and I don't want to call them, carpet baggers, um, carpet baggers, they were um, traders that would pack up a load of stuff on their back and wander around and peddlers and, and sell pots and pans and thread and needles. But they also usually had little bottles of mint that they would sell. And um, some of the big mint industries are still here in North America. Turpentine was important because it is a starter material for many, many of our aromatic molecules. Turpentine is an organic compound. It has those six carbon or 16 or 12 carbon molecules that can be taken into the lab and converted to create um, a variety of different scented molecules, uh, sometimes floral, sometimes fresh. And I'm, I'm gonna not have a specific example, but turpentine's been huge. Um, and all along the East Coast, 
turpentine was harvested in part for use in um, other purposes, but a lot of it goes to creating fragrance. Hmm. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I think it's a really interesting kind of to hear about or almost the the in the inner mechanics of kind of these things that we um, definitely experience in day-to-day life, but maybe don't all understand the mechanisms behind it. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, on a related note, um, you've already kind of mentioned the um, creation of scents um, and how this can make certain scents much, much more cost-effective to use, for example, the scent of vanilla. Um, but I'm guessing, and I certainly know from the book, that it's not equally easy to um, create certain scents um, chemically as opposed to others. So I was wondering if you could almost let us peek behind the curtain a little bit. Um, what scents are easy or cost-effective to produce and which ones are hard and why? Well, I kind of decided to look at three tiers of um, cost. The least expensive but highly useful are the citruses, mandarin and grapefruit and orange, um, lemon. Are all they all have a place in perfume? They they provide our top notes. They're quick. They're friendly. They're they they are the opening of the perfume, and a lot of those are quite inexpensive because. They can be produced as a side product of um, the citrus juice industry. So they they will make the juice, but the essential oils, they're called oils because they float on top of an aqueous solution. They don't blend with water. And so they can separate out, when they make orange juice, separate out that peel oil and use it, the perfume industry calls it upcycling, use it and sell it on to the fragrance industry or the aromatherapy industry. Um, Lavender is fairly inexpensive to make, I think, just because it's so popular. And, you know, there are a number of places that will grow it. The... um, There are, I guess I will use frankincense. Frankincense is sort of a middle tier uh, expense and it's just less available, harder to harvest. There may be some control on the part of um, the growers. And so um, accessibility, ease of distillation and so on. the florals uh, tend to be probably on the high end and a lot of those are extracted with solvent and it's just the yield, the labor, the yield, the um, expense of growing, the care all contribute to, and desirability I'm sure has something to do with it, all contribute to a higher cost. And then you've got the usually expensive, like we already talked about, auger wood and some of the more rare uh, woods. Hmm. That would make sense. Um, How is yeast involved in modern perfumery? (laughs) This is a a fairly recent um, science. 
And, and what you can do is what they've discovered is with the ability to edit genetic material, you can take a yeast um, strain and insert a gene for producing a particular smell. And then you've got a vat, you've got some sort of um, food source. It might be oil, it might be sugar that the yeast can grow on. And instead of producing alcohol like we're familiar with in wine, it will produce, and I'm, I'm don't know all the details, but one of the products that it makes is this is a fragrant chemical. And it might be a rosy smelling one. It might be, um, that's the one I know of, but they can program a variety of chemicals and they're getting better uh, fruity. Some of the fruity molecules for flavors are, are produced by yeast. And so you're you're doing your whole agricultural growing and harvesting and everything. Instead of doing that, you're doing it in a vat, in a laboratory. And it makes for more affordable ingredients, um, both in synthesizing molecules and in using yeast, you've got predictability and uniformity of fragrance. Plants don't give you that so much. You know, lavender is different year by year by year. People who are wine enthusiasts know about terroir, where the weather or the geography makes a difference in, in the taste of a wine. It's the same with essential oils. And so for the perfume industry, having the ability to synthesize either chemically or by using yeast gives molecules that can be used in a perfume that are the same year after year after year. And a lot of people want that. They want to go buy a perfume and know that it's going to smell the same as it did before. And that's what the industry depends on. Mm. There are, however, artisan perfumers like artisan winemakers who celebrate and appreciate and explain that, okay, I used rose this year that might be a little different next year, but you know, it's all part of the process and the story and that facet of perfumery. Hmm. Yeah, that would make sense. Um, as you said, a lot of other industries um, are doing sort of similar things. So thank you for explaining how that works in perfumery. Um, as my kind of one of my last questions, one of the things that I most appreciated about the book um, that I mentioned sort of at the beginning is that there are lots of different ways in. You don't have to be an expert to learn a lot from the book, to really get a lot of enjoyment out of the book as well. And one of the reasons for that is because you essentially directly address the enthusiastic amateur, um, amateur gardener, uh, bird watcher, scent hunter. I don't know what the word would be really. Um, but what would you recommend that those kinds of enthusiasts who might want to learn more about scent, particularly in kind of their immediate surroundings, how might they, if they're going for a walk in the park or woodlands or something like that, what should they look out for to try and match, for example, flowers and pollinators and kind of get in on this understanding of some of how scents are created? 
I love this part of learning about flowers because it goes directly to the pollinators. And uh, we'll start with back, let's see, the botanists who were studying pollination at one point in time, probably, um, well, 50 years ago maybe, thought that there were very specific relationships between a flower color, a flower shape, and the pollinator that would recognize that. And we already talked about white flowers and moths and the fragrance and the shape and the reward that they give. Um, so if you see, you know, if you have a garden with, with jasmine at night, you want to go out at night and you want to look for the moths that are coming to pollinate. You might see bees during the day because bees, you know, recognize a lot of different flowers and a lot of different fragrances. Specifically, though, bees tend to respond to pink and purple and purple-blue flowers that may be kind of showy. Um, butterflies like yellow and orange or red, and they like big masses of blooms. Think about milkweed or... Um, trying to think sunflowers you know there's a big showy daisies there's a big showy flower that that um, butterflies can recognize and sometimes they like to be able to land on the petals um we have two kinds of moths that pollinate flowers at night the white flowers the hummingbird moth or the sphinx moth hovers in front of the flower. And so the flower is oriented so they can stick their tongues in it, but they don't need some place to land. They just need a nice long tube with some nectar at the bottom. Some moths though like to be able to land. And so those flowers, and they're usually light colored, will have a petal that the moth can land on and insert its proboscis and gather some nectar. Um, hummingbirds don't have a sense of smell, but they've got excellent vision and they love red flowers. Um, that's why we color our hummingbird feeders. You probably shouldn't color the, the nectar, but most hummingbird feeders have red because that attracts the moths. Um, bats fly around at night and they're similar to moths in, in what they're attracted to, but Sometimes they like kind of stinky, rotten fruit fragrances. And there's, then there's the famous corpse flower that a lot of botanical gardens have, and it sends up this huge shoot of extremely smelly flowers. And those attract flies because they smell like dead things and stinky things. And so they're pollinated by flies. And I think that's it. That's quite a list of recommendations. I think there's probably a lot of listeners who are writing notes down of, oh, I'm going to go do this to my bird feeder. and Oh, I'm going to go oh, look at this. At and, night. Yeah, and bumblebees love um, pollen. And they're attracted to, like, the wild roses with the big yellow um, stamen-rich centers. Um, so they, and they love to bumble among those flowers in buzz and buzz. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Thank you very much um, for sharing 
all of these insights with us again on a number of different facets from the chemical to the sort of commercial to the amateur gardeners um, and a lot else. Um, so really, as just my last question, um, this book is now out and available for people to read. So what sorts of things might you be working on now where people can find you? Oh, what's next? You know, I, I, I am spending a lot of time thinking about that. Um, there are two stories in the book that I would like to um, tell more stories about. Sandalwood has such an interesting history with trade and with biology and botany that I would, I would like to explore the opportunity to tell that story more. And then the, the frankincense and myrrh and some of the uh, resin-producing plants from Central America are in a group called the Torchwoods. And they're very central to um, incense and religion. And um, they live in very special places. And so I'd love to do that. But also, and this is going to take me, you know, for the next few years, I'd love to write a natural history of sound. Mm. I just very much enjoyed diving into the different stories and unknown, you know, new to me things. And coming from a musical family, um, I'm pretty interested in sound and animal, you know, birds and animals make a lot of sounds. So those are my diverse directions that I'm pondering. Very interesting directions. Um, thank you for sharing them. And while you are off pondering them, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, which as a reminder is titled Scent, A Natural History, out from Yale University Press in 2022. Dr. Elise Vernon Perlstein, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you. This was a, a wonderful opportunity to talk about the book and answer some questions. I appreciate it.